invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Isaiah. We're going to look at chapter 42 this morning. I think it's on page 602 in your pew Bible if you're using that one. Isaiah chapter 42, we're going to look mainly at the first four verses. I'm going to read the first nine. We'll, we'll talk about the last five a little bit, but the concentration will be on verses one through four as we talk this morning about delighting in the servant of the Lord. This is one of five servant songs. Uh, they're really poems, but, but they're often called songs that the prophet Isaiah includes. There's the suffering servant, uh, this one is about how we are to delight in the servant. And more specifically, it says that God, the Father, delights in this servant who is coming. Of course, we know who this servant is. This is Christ. And so we want to talk about, well, who, what has this servant come to do? What has Christ come to do in our midst? And why are we called to delight in him? Maybe you don't think of Christ and, and your relationship with him as one of delight or one of pleasure it ought to be we ought to think about it's I am glad to be a servant of the Lord I'm glad to be his child as we talked about last night with that in mind let me read for us Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 9 behold my servant whom I uphold my chosen in whom my soul delights I have put my spirit upon him he will bring forth justice to the nations he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before thy sp they spring forth, I tell you of them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we ask that you would now teach us from your word. Lord, would you give us delight in you, delight in your son, Jesus Christ, delight in the Holy Spirit that now indwells us and indwells the very place where we are worshiping now. Lord, give us the desire to know you more deeply each and every day. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. <clears throat> when you're in seminary, studying to become a pastor, you learn Greek and Hebrew. At least most seminaries teach Greek and Hebrew. It's hard at first. Typically, whatever language you take first, most seminarians regard as the more difficult of the two. Maybe there's something you kind of get about the first one. It helps you understand the second I don't know why that's the reality, I just know that it is. I took Greek first and found it far harder than Hebrew that I took second. Bobby, I don't know what you think about that, but I thought that Greek was a lot harder than Hebrew. But just learning any discipline, but particularly the languages you learn in seminary, they get more fun the more you know about them. 
At first, of course, it's just the vocabulary words. It's, it's sentence structure, it's syntax. You've got to learn the alphabet. And then as you progress, you learn the oddities of the language. Every language has oddities, especially English, by the way. You learn more and more about the language, and the more you learn, the more fun it is to open your Greek New Testament and begin to read because you understand finally what it is you're reading. Anything that you learn, the more you know it, the more fun it is. You, the more you enjoy a sport, you enjoy it because you're better at it, or you progress in your understanding of it. This is not anything unusual. What we know more of, we begin to enjoy more doing it or thinking about it or reading on that particular subject. We used as our affirmation of faith just a moment ago, question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which you probably know quite well. What is the chief end of man? The man, Man's chief end or the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, my assumption is that we kind of all know what to do with the first part of that to glorify God, yeah, I got it. Come, on, come to church on Sundays, you know, sing praises to God, uh, and everything that I do, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, I'm to give glory to God. Thank you, Lord, for my health. Thank you for my family. Thank you for the abilities that I have. That is sort of intuitive, I think, to us. What may be less intuitive is the second part of that answer. What does it mean for us to enjoy him forever? What does it mean, as Isaiah says here in chapter 42, to delight in God? To enjoy Him, not just from time to time, but now and forevermore. How do I delight in Him? What probably begins as a discipline, and your knowledge of Him, your relationship with Him deepens, so too does your delight increase. When you don't know Him very well, you don't know what to delight in. You don't know all that he has done. You, you haven't walked with him. You haven't cried out, Abba, Father, as we talked about last night. As the relationship lengthens, the delight increases. I would imagine over the last at least 12 hours, maybe 24, you've had a lot of delight in your house, haven't you? You've enjoyed, just as I have, watching my two boys open their presents. You've had delight yourself. You've witnessed a lot of delight is uh, they've opened the things that they've liked. Maybe you've opened some things that you liked. Delight in our lives is not something that's unusual to us, but perhaps delighting in God is unusual to you. But this is what we're meant to have, to be glad to spend time with Him, to be gladdened to come into the house of the Lord and to praise Him. I was glad when they said unto me, the psalmist says, when they told me, it's time to go to the house of the Lord. Well, what are we to delight in? What has the servant done that we should delight in it? Well, that's what the first four verses are about in this 42nd chapter of Isaiah. Number one, what will the servant do? What is he going to do that we ought to delight in? Perhaps you've noticed a pattern in the Old Testament. I mentioned this a couple of sermons ago. We have a problem, we have a promise for a provision for that problem, and then we have the actual provision itself. So we have sin, we have a promised seed of a woman, we have a virgin who's to give birth in the Old Testament that's prophesied. We've, we've got a provision or a promise for it, and Christ comes and he's the provision of the promises. He's, he's the yes to all the promises of God. And that is exactly what we see in who this servant is going to be. It's the promise 
of the provision. What is he going to do? Well, he's going to be a servant. Maybe that's a bit counterintuitive to us. No, we want a strong, tough leader. You're getting a servant who's no less strong and tough, but he's going to lead, he's going to minister in a way that maybe we didn't anticipate. And this is going to be a tremendous comfort to God's people. Isaiah wants to encourage weary believers in Israel at this time. They are weary because they're on the brink from an incredibly unpleasant season in the life of Israel. Assyria is coming to conquer the northern kingdom. Babylon will be around soon to conquer the southern kingdom and to take them off into exile. They need the reminder that they are God's chosen people. They need the reminder that I have promises for you, I'm providing for you, I have come to encourage you. You're going to need to be reminded of this. You are my people. I have called you by name, as he will open chapter 43 with. God's promises are always sure. His grace cannot be frustrated. I would imagine that at Christmas time, for some of us, we need that same encouragement. Christmas is a time of delight. It also can be a time of, you're exhausted again. You need the encouragement of the same story of the birth of Christ coming into this world for you, and it needs to lift you up again. You need to be reminded that you are in bondage, but now free because of Christ. You need to be reminded that, yes, your future in this life perhaps may be stormy with many trials. In fact, very likely it will be. It may be times of discouragement, but look at the God you have. Don't trust in this life. Don't trust in the people of this life. Trust in the servant of the Lord. Again and again, Israel has been given leaders. Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Samuel and David and Solomon and Elijah and Elisha and even Isaiah himself. And as wonderful as they've been, as they have often redirected the attention of God's people unto God again, they are imperfect leaders. They've all fallen short. They need a savior. They need this servant to come. It's sort of like your pastors to a degree. We want to be faithful men in your life. We want to preach faithfully the scriptures. You don't need me. You don't need Bobby. You don't need Mark. You don't need Daniel. Hopefully we can serve you only so as to point you to the one that you do need. That's our faithfulness, Lord willing, unto you is to say, don't look at us. Don't look at one another. Look to Christ. Look to the servant of the Lord. That's what you need to daily be pointing yourself to. That's what you need to daily be pointing your spouse to and your children to. Delight. Don't delight in the things you have. Don't delight in the things of this world. Delight in him. The one that is promised. So what is Jesus like? What is this servant like? Well, the chapter opens, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. The Father is saying of the Son, I delight in Him. I love what He has come to do. I love Him. It's a servant that's appointed by God in whom His soul delights. And I have put my spirit upon Him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Justice. I mentioned this months ago, the term social justice, that term's kind of fallen on hard times in our culture because it's been so narrowly defined. Is justice a biblical term? Of course it is. 
But it's not just about bad people coming under, under judgment or bad people getting what they deserve or, or the law being carried out, carried out rightly. It includes that, but biblical justice is far broader than that. God bringing justice to bear in this world is not just bad people being punished, though it is that. It's God's law and God's way transforming your desires. It's not just don't do that and, and keep yourself out of that. It includes it. But justice and law in us and amongst us is us now wanting to do what is good, not just avoiding bad things because of punishment. What else is this servant going to do? He's not going to scream and yell at people. It says he's not going to cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He's going to come meekly and he's going to serve. He's not going to be a self-promoter, as one commentator said. Verse 3, it says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He's going to be tender. He's going to be compassionate. And that is exactly what we need him to be. A little candlelight that's just about to go out, someone at the very end of their rope, you're almost ready to break. He is coming to be tender to you. As powerful, as good, as huge and transcendent as God is, he's also very tender and mild. And he will serve his people. This is a great blessing to those of us who are discouraged, who are afraid, those particularly perhaps lacking assurance. Isaiah comforts us with this. Peter will say in 1 Peter chapter 5, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. What do we always want out of our leaders? We want them to be strong. We want them to be tough. We want them to go tell off all those bad people. We want them to get rid of all the people that are ruining everything. Well, there may be a place for that for leaders. What is this servant leader going to do? He's going to come and serve. That's what he's asking us, I believe, as well. Yes, we want to be tough-minded people. We love each other best when we're serving each other. We love each other best when we don't regard ourselves and our wants first, yet the, want, the needs of the others above ourselves. Jesus displays all these things. At the end of the day, all of us, whether you think this of yourself or not, you are a bruised reed. You're a faintly burning wick. Life is not fair. Justice does not always come to you in this life. There are unspeakable losses and hurt. You are a bruised reed, and he comes and he heals you because he loves you, and he's compassionate unto us. Derek Thomas says we needed someone who was strong enough to save us and also gentle enough to want to save us. I think that's right. And fourthly, it says of this great servant, he will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Now, personally, I can tell you this is the most convicting of all these. How many of us often don't do what is right simply because we are tired? Fatigue makes cowards of us all. That's to use the common phrase we often say. Do you grow weary in doing good? Yes, we grow weary in doing good. I have my worst moments as a parent. Why? Because I'm tired. And I don't want to carry out the discipline that my sons need. Why? 
because I'm tired. Leave me alone. I don't want to deal with that right now. I don't want to do what I know I must because I'm tired. I'm not saying that as an excuse. I'm saying that as an explanation. <laughs> what, but what does it say of the servant? He never grows weary, ever. He never gets tired. He's never fatigued. He always does what is right. He always serves. He always carries out to this compassion that we need. And that's why the Father delights in him, and that's why we ought likewise to delight in him. He doesn't grow weary of doing well. He may not return for millions of years, and not one day will he get tired of upholding this world in the palm of his hand and loving us as we need him to love us. That's what we can say about the servant. And that's exactly what we see in the ministry of Jesus Christ. At Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, the Holy Spirit descends onto Christ once baptized, and then a voice is heard, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, in whom I delight. The father saying this of the son. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus, it says, is full of the Holy Spirit as he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted and to do all the things that Adam did not. And it says that the Holy Spirit ministered to him. Matthew chapter 12 actually cites and quotes Isaiah 42. He doesn't get into a shouting match there in Matthew 12 with the Pharisees. Instead, he withdraws and he goes and he ministers to sick people and hurting people. The faintly burning wicks, we might say. He was a miracle worker who saved people from their sins and comforted them in their afflictions. He was the humble servant. And Matthew's gospel shows us this. So secondly, what are we to do? In light of what this servant, this servant we are to delight in, in light of what he has done, what are we to do? How are we to respond to this? If this servant really was the hope of Israel, if he is the hope of this world, which he is, how do we respond to that? God was trying to break through this idolatry, which you see Isaiah talks about at the end of chapter 41. He's trying to break through all these conflicted uh, uh, loves that his people had. and said, no, you worship me only. I love you. Look at what I've done for you. He's constantly reminding them of that. He's saying, look, look at this servant. My soul delights in him. You're thrilled with too many other things. Don't delight in, in the pagan worship. Don't delight in the things. Don't delight in me, he says. My son means the world to me, and I want you to delight in him the same. Look at how unusual he is. He comes to serve. He brings forth justice. He doesn't have to yell and scream. He's tender to the least of these. Jesus is always better, Westminster. His way is always better. His manner is always better. It seems counterintuitive. It seems like, well, if I do that, that's just going to take too long and that's inefficient. No, his way is indeed always better. His way to love people is always better. His burden is light, his way is pure. His promises always come true, and he brings peace and comfort. And he calls us to do the same, to love others in the same way. Just look at how successful he is. 
The, the kingdom is inevitably, there's nothing. The gates of hell can't overcome it. And this is the way he desires us to live amongst one another. What does he want from you and me? He wants us to delight in him. What does that mean, pastor? How do you delight in God? Those of you who have been walking with God for a long time, do you delight in him? Well, why? Because you know him so well. You love him because there's a depth to that relationship that you have cultivated over years and years. The Holy Spirit has shown you new, wonderful things of him all the time. That you, you can really say with the psalmist, I have beheld wondrous things in his word and of what he is for me. Now that takes time. If you've just begun to walk with the Lord, say, well, I've been reading my Bible for two months and I'm just not quite feeling what you're speaking of. Keep at it. You need depth. You need a length of time. You need what, as I've quoted this book before, what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. Long obedience in the same direction in his subtitle, which I think is the best part of that title, Discipleship in an Instant Society. (laughs) That's right. We live in an instant society that unless it can be microwaved, we want nothing to do with it. That's not what discipleship is. It's a book that he wrote on the 15 Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 to 134. It's the Psalms that the pilgrims, as they were going to Jerusalem, they would have sung back and forth to one another. Likely it was antiphonally, and it's an encouragement. Let's all go to Jerusalem and worship God, and as we're doing, let's encourage each other with these Psalms. Peterson says that we must decide whether or not we are going to be tourists in this life or pilgrims. And I'm quoting him now. It's not difficult in such a world as ours to be a person interested in the message of the gospel. It's terribly difficult, however, to sustain that interest. Millions of people in our culture make a decision for Christ, but there is a dreadful attrition rate. There is a great market for religious experience in our culture, but there's little patience for the acquisition of virtue. There is little patience for the long journey of holiness. Religion in our time has been captured by the tourist mindset. Discipleship says we spend our lives as an apprentice to our master Jesus Christ, not classroom learning, but from doing and following, on-the-job development. The pilgrim realizes that this world is not our home, and he has set out for the Father's house, following a long obedience in the same direction. Here's what you need for 2023. You need to go find a church home if you haven't already and to dig in and to be committed to this long obedience in the same direction. I pray that it's here at Westminster. To be committed to this body of believers walking alongside each other, bearing burdens, sharing our faith together. Let's go deep and find that delight we are meant to have. That's discipleship. That's how this delight actually grows. I don't know if you've ever heard of the name Fritz Kreisler. Maybe you musicians have, perhaps. He was, at the age of 12, he graduated from the Conservatory of Music in Paris and regarded at that time by most as the greatest violinist in the world. He was excellent. One day, years later, he was traveling. He was going from one concert to another. He was about to hop on a boat and go to the site of his next concert, and he was killing some time in a little shop there next to where he would board the boat in about an hour. 
He had his violin with him, and he's shopping around, and he sets it down to, to take a look at some things. And the store owner runs out of the store, goes and gets two police officers and comes back. Arrest this man. He has stolen Fritz Kreisler's violin. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I am Fritz Kreisler. To which the police officer said, yeah, right. We know who he is, and you're not him. No, I really am. This is my violin. And they didn't believe him. They were ready to put handcuffs on, on him, and he said, just wait a minute. And he takes the violin out of its case, and he begins to play the violin as only Fritz Kreisler could. Everybody knew the minute he started playing that violin, okay, you're right, uh, we are sorry. Nobody could do it quite as well as you could. We apologize for mistakenly arresting you. Please go about and have a great day, Mr. Kreisler. <laughs> what Mr. Christ has done in your life and in this world, only what he could do. The Savior came to offer himself for you, to give you his righteousness, only he could do it. He is the only one worthy this morning of our delight. You delight in him. Here is our challenge for 2023, that God would give us delight in the one who has come to do only what he could. That he would restore in us the joy of our salvation. Joy perhaps that we have lost. He has done in our life and on our behalf only what he could do because he loves us. Father sent the Son, and now he has left us his spirit that encourages us and deepens that trust in him and that delight. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for doing all the things necessary to reconcile us to yourself. And Lord, now that you would help us be committed to deepening our faith and trust in you every single day. Lord, that we would cry out to you, Abba, Father. We thank you that you call us, you ask us to come boldly to pray unto you. You hear our prayers, and you are mighty to work in our lives and in this church and in this world. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. If you would, stand for the benediction, and then remain standing as we sing the doxology together. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.